Hi there, and welcome to Axel Bank Reports History and Today Conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. I'm Evan Axelbank. Today we're going to speak with Paul Kendrick, the author of Nine Days The Race to Save Martin Luther King Jr.'s Life and Win the 1960 Election. This is the third book that he and his father have written together. He's worked in the Obama White House, runs the political organizing group Rust Belt Rising, and is an adjunct professor at National Lewis University. Paul, thanks so much for being here. My pleasure. Really excited to talk to you about Nine Days. Thank you for all you do to spread history. Uh, it's, my, it's my pleasure. It's a ton of fun. Um, before we do start, I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash History. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. On October 16, 1960, Martin Luther King joined 50 student activists for a sit-in at a department store in downtown Atlanta. He was one of many arrested after he refused to leave private property. Since he was on probation for a previous driving offense, he was sentenced to hard labor for four months in state prison. Also on that day, the presidential race was in its waning moments. Kennedy and Nixon were racing across the country, trying to piece together 270 electoral votes. And each were wondering how to get the votes of African Americans without offending various groups of white voters. My first question, Paul, is when it comes to October surprises, we all hear about October surprises every uh, 4th November, the late breaking news stories that can tip a presidential election where does the arrest of Martin Luther King Jr. on October 19th, 1960 rank? I put it at the top because it ends up totally reshaping our political parties in this late shift of uh, black voters. There's, there's not much like that uh, in, you know, it, we've had some really critical ones that have moved things at the margins, which make a difference in a close election. Uh, but, but this really reshaped our politics for decades to come in ways that are still with us in terms of who our parties appeal to and who makes up our political coalition. So the end of an election is a high stakes, uh, dramatic, exciting thing. And, and so in finding this story, um, we wanted to take the reader into the feel of those last days where the fast decisions that leaders make end up changing our history, give us the history we have today. And, and so for Dr. King to be arrested, that was an October surprise that neither Kennedy or Nixon really wanted because they were kind of avoiding the issue of race. Um, and Atlanta black college students of the sit-in movement who pressured King to go to jail with them really forced their issue to be discussed um, and in that sense challenged which presidential candidate would have the courage to speak up for King. And uh, in, in nine days, we tell the story of how uh, because of a trio of civil rights staffers on this campaign that, that, that intervened before they <laughs> ever had permission to, uh, that ends up happening. Before we get too far in, I do want to explain, yeah. I, I want to have you explain who Martin Luther King Jr. was at this point. You know, we yeah. sitting 50 years later, we look back and we consider him one of the great heroes of American history, top two or three of the entire nation's uh, lifespan. Um, but at the time in 1960, he was not yet a legend. You know, you have to remember the I Have a Dream speech doesn't come until eight years later. Um, he was not yet a legend but he did have some profile. 
Yeah, that was what one of the most interesting things to me in researching the book and and getting to know those who were friends of King, who were in a jail cell with him, who grew up with him, um, and and understood him as a person, and in 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 our, our research, being able to take the reader into an unfamiliar place where Martin Luther King is a rising civil rights leader. Um, but, you know, the New York Times would still have to give their reader context of, oh, he was known for a, a, a bus boycott. Um, and, and um, you know, he was, you know, he would, I'd find in like a local Atlanta paper, he was having like a workshop at the local YMCA. And, you know, he had done different things that hadn't gotten many signups. So he was still finding his way because the, the, the challenge he was in is he had had the Montgomery bus boycott four years before the 1960 election, and which was an incredible, uh, unexpected, uh, inspiring success. But then he was kind of struggling to figure out, okay, now everyone is looking to me to lead a movement and to change America and to bring equality nationally as he had, uh, you know, made change in one small city. And he was really struggling with how he was going to do that. And so at this critical moment in, in the evolution of the civil rights movement, these black college students start doing sit-ins. They had been inspired by, by King's and, and the Montgomery bus boycott, that use of civil disobedience. They had a new spin on it uh, and how they were sitting down at lunch counters and going to jail. And King had never been to jail. And so they, and so King had just moved home to Atlanta and, um, and people that grew up with him, um, that knew him, that he was a, you know, he was kind of like an older brother figure too, uh, that he was, you know, a really supportive uh, kind of mentor and ally to them, to the college students at Morehouse and Spelman, other Atlanta universities. They really, uh, and, and you learn about in the first couple chapters, were putting serious pressure on him to go to jail with them. And it opened up a real agonizing choice for King for a number of reasons, but um, not the least of which it was an extremely dangerous thing to go into a, a jail in the Jim Crow South voluntarily. That was a mind blowing thing to people. Um, but, but King, the book is ultimately about, and I don't want to get too far ahead, but making that choice, staring down death as he does over the next nine days and the harrowing things that happened to him were critical in elevating him to be the national leader and helping him see the future course of the civil rights movement, allowing him to, to go on to something like Birmingham, um, you know, three years later, uh, which, which required staring down death again. What he goes through in these nine days helped him become the leader we remember. So I think people are really enjoying reading this, in a sense, origin story of, uh, of King as a leader. And, and there's a lot we can learn from him and the Atlanta student activists who uh, were not famous figures. Most of them still are not famous figures, but, uh, but changed America, changed the world, and changed the leader we do remember with Dr. King. I do want to uh, correct something I said. I said he didn't give the I Have a Dream speech eight years later. It was actually three years later. My apologies. 1963. Of course, I was thinking 1968 for a much worse uh, reason. Yeah. Uh, where uh, was the presidential race at this time? What did the electoral map look like? How did the votes of African-Americans figure in? Um, why were both campaigns treading so carefully when it came to throwing their weight behind strong civil rights laws and other promises? Um, and what's really interesting is the thinking at the time was that Nixon would have the edge with black voters. Yeah, so that's another thing that is really unfamiliar to us. And so we help ground the reader in a different world uh, of 1960 where 
the black vote is really up for grabs and it looks like it might go 50-50 in the sense the black voters were looking at who was going to be better for them. It wasn't clear. John Kennedy seemed like this, you know, uh, was this aloof Massachusetts Senator Rich Boy um, who'd been accommodationist to Southern senators. In the 1950s, Nixon had been seen as a a force for civil rights in, in Washington as vice president and had befriended Martin Luther King. And the King family, they were Republicans. Daddy King uh, was, you know, in the days before uh, this arrest, he's doing, you know, Republican rallies for Nixon uh, in, in Atlanta, in the black community of Atlanta. Black Atlantans voted Republican. And so we have to understand that uh, for black Atlantans, um, the, you know, the, the governor is a Democrat. A lot, you know, these Dixiecrat politicians who are, uh, maintaining segregation, uh, they are by and large Democrats. So uh, it makes all the sense in the world that they're Republicans. Um, but overall, I think people just were not focused in sufficiently on that there could be a power in the black vote. Um, obviously, in a lot of the country, black voters weren't able to vote, but um, but in, in cities and in the North that, that they that they were. And um, and it turns out the black vote would be very well distributed to make a critical difference in an electoral map that is so different than ours today. Like today we have, you know, less than 10 states that kind of decide an election. In the 1960 election, so many states were close. Like the, 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 the vast majority of states were decided by a few thousand votes. So it's really a wild electoral map where kind of, you know, New York's up for grabs, California's up for grabs, Illinois is up for grabs, uh, Texas is up for grabs, you know. And Do you think that's healthier? Do you think that's healthier for our country? You, you, you know, I, I mean, it's, um, yeah, in a lot of ways in that, you know, the, the, the politicians who are having to, to go everywhere, talk to all voters, now they really, you know, focus on voters in a few states. And, um, things were uh, less regional in the sense of just kind of like, you know, uh, but one thing you see in the book is the way that the South had voted Democrat for a long time. And uh, Nixon started to think he might be able to flip these uh, Southern states to Republicans. And as, and, and so that's going to be a factor in why he doesn't speak out, but, but he will eventually do that. And that is the politics we have today, but he's not going to be able to do it in this election for the reasons that you find out for the, the power that black voters find um, to choose the candidate that they trust uh, that shows a, a, some of his character that they believe will mean he'll, he'll push for equality. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a really interesting question of when we have such a narrow map and we have such a uh, polarized uh, partisan, um, really almost kind of tribal politics today. Um, you know, there's a lot less openness, I think, along a lot of voters. And, um, and, and two of the characters in the book are uh, Nixon's black advisors, Jackie Robinson and E. Frederick Morrow, who are pushing him to speak out for the imprisoned king. And I, and I mentioned them here to your question because they wanted Republicans to be the leaders on civil rights. And so I think they would have they wanted a future where the two parties were really competing on, on civil rights, you know, who is, who is, you know, doing, doing more for that. And so, you know, I think that would be healthy. That was more of the dynamics today, but, um, but that is, you know, not exactly the dynamics today. The two parties have, you know, are, uh, have totally different appeals to kind of turn out the two coalitions that we have. What did each candidate have in their backgrounds that leaves clues 
as to how sympathetic they would be to the lives of Americans who are black. There's one quote in the book where JFK says, you got to excuse me here. I have very little experience with Mm -hmm. African-Americans. And at the same time, you talk all about how Richard Nixon grew up in really difficult circumstances. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it it is really interesting to understand the... (sighs) what Nixon did overcome and and kind of his underdog background that um, at a young age made him, I think, more sympathetic to um, victims of discrimination. Now he'll later be seduced by uh, a politics of kind of grievance and resentment and um, the kind of dog whistle politics that uh, that allow you to not say things that are sound that someone will identify as racist, but is like tapping into resentments. But um, yeah, he he you know grew up you know waking up at three thirty in the morning to go get the, the the goods for the the family store, and you know he couldn't go to the Ivy League schools because he couldn't afford it. And got a scholarship to do so. He always saw himself as the overlooked um, underdog, uh, you know, against these elites. Um, and of course, John Kennedy uh, comes from the most. Yeah, he wasn't getting up background. at three in the morning to go take a drive to get stuff for the family store. He certainly was not. He had no idea where the money even came from. He <laughs> right, just never exactly. had to worry about it. Right, right. The one thing that he did have was he did have you know some understanding that you know Irish people had been discriminated against, um, and 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 he did have an understanding that there you know there's poverty in America and that was wrong. But um, when King. Uh, so one of our characters, Harris Wofford, who's a civil rights advisor for Kennedy, uh, you know, he had arranged a meeting with uh, a couple of meetings with King and Kennedy. And the thing King wanted to feel more from Kennedy was a visceral sense of this discrimination is wrong. We have to fix this. And and he kind of thought, you know, Kennedy was thinking of civil rights as a bit of a problem to be managed and, and wasn't um, really emotionally connected to it. And, and what's interesting is, um, I, uh, in, in one, an early draft of the book, I had, we had a line that was essentially like, you know, just in his background, Kennedy hadn't been exposed to, you know, black community, black issues. And, and a, a black friend who, uh, was kind enough to read the book, uh, before it was published said, well, you know, that's kind of letting him off the hook. Like, don't we have to seek out things beyond our experience? And I thought that was like a great flag. And so I, I, I rewrote that sentence, but, um, you know, fundamentally, Kennedy would have to listen to perspectives that were beyond his own, his experience. And he does do that in the nine days and then makes, you know, critical decisions that help save Dr. King's life. And, um, you know, and, and so so it's an interesting thing that, you know, we can grow. There's things beyond our experiences. And uh, Kennedy did have a, a, a decency that uh, allowed him to do what was what was right in this uh, instance. And I think it's also worth remembering that he was sick a number of times. He was interacting with nurses and um, with people during World War II who certainly didn't come from the same privileged background. So even if he was somewhat sheltered racially, um, he still was not quite sheltered into the reality, uh, sheltered from the realities of what the world could bring, mm-hmm. um, which I think is interesting. Um, mm-hmm. uh, how do the campaigns initially react to the arrest of Dr. King with just two weeks, two and a half weeks to go before the election? So um, 
So, yeah, King is arrested in Atlanta for the student sit-in at Rich's department store. And um, initially, they're, they're not doing much. So uh, on, on the Kennedy side, our characters are Louis Martin, who is, uh, was a black advisor uh, who had come from the Chicago Defender and been recruited onto the campaign to kind of save their fledgling black outreach um, because they had been being run by two white liberals, um, Harris Wofford, who had been an advisor to King and a Howard Law graduate who was passionate about Gandhi and civil disobedience. So a, a really interesting character um, and uh, Sergeant Shriver. And, and to their credit, they were really trying to run something new, which was a substantive issue-based outreach to black voters. And that, that really hadn't been done in politics before. So they took black voters seriously, but they didn't know people in the community to really uh, to, to, to do what they need to do organizing wise. And so Louis Martin was able to really help them do that. Um, and so so they're monitoring the situation, but essentially there was a critical difference that happened of when, when King goes to jail in Atlanta, uh, the Atlanta mayor uh, was a, a relative kind of racial moderate. Um, and so King is thought of as, you know, pretty safe in there. But what happens uh, that really changes the whole situation is the neighboring county, uh, DeKalb, that was thought of back then as like Klan country. Um, seizes King because of a previous uh, traffic violation, takes him into custody, and then is going to sentence him to four months at the perilous state prison in rural Georgia, Reedsville. And so that's what escalates the situation um, and will ultimately um, kind of force the issue. But but Harris Wofford, uh, the thing he does uh, before all of that happens was he does call down uh, to someone he knew in Atlanta to kind of see, you know, because a couple of days had passed and he had thought, you know, I'm Martin's friend. I'm the Kennedy civil rights advisor. I, this is terrible. I haven't done anything. And and he starts to make inquiries, which get to the mayor of Atlanta. And then the mayor of Atlanta comes out and says, well, the Kennedy campaign has, you know, uh, gotten involved in this. And Harris is like, oh my God, I'm going to lose my job. I, I didn't clear any of this. So, but that is a critical moment in the story because now the Kennedy campaign, like it or not, they're engaged, they're involved. And as the situation is going to get more dangerous, um, that is going to um, make it, uh, you know, really increase the need for them to solve it. And this is why you say that this is also not only a race to win the election, but a race to save Martin Luther King's life, because the fear is that if he gets taken from this local jail, this Atlanta jail, to the state pen, that is a whole different, it presents a whole different slew of dangers to an African-American leader. Yeah, and we found a lot of accounts of people being killed in this, black men being killed in Reedsville. And so, it, and, and Daddy King is told that this is going to be a way that King can be quietly killed. And, and, and King is going to be, because first he's taken to DeKalb County, and then he's woken up in the middle of the night, shackled, put in the back of the car, not told where he's going, thinking he's going to his death, driven all night across Georgia um, in an experience that you learn about in the book will, will really change his life. Um, so yeah, so it, it, it gets a lot more dangerous and that's going to prompt Coretta King to, you know, call Harris crying of, you know, they're going to kill Martin. I know they will. Um, so it's going to get a lot more dangerous, but, but even still, you know, in those first few days, I, I mentioned the black Republicans um, and there was a, a black uh, Atlanta Republican leader named John Calhoun. He's calling, you know, the Nixon campaign and Republican leadership saying, Hey, 
you got to speak out. This is an important moment. You know, Martin Luther King's in jail. We can, you know, the Democrats have put him in jail. Uh, you know, this is, uh, we, we got to, you know, speak out. I know Martin is, you know, a friend of, of Nixon's. Um, and, and then you see over these days that Nixon uh, just gets chance after chance to do that and, and keep passing. I, I, I do want to focus on Martin Luther King's um, I want to focus on that first night in jail. I want to focus on that feeling that he had in jail. And you do quote, um, I guess, something that he probably wrote later on in his life. Um, he says, and I'm going to read the quote. He says, there's something inherently depressing about jail. It leaves one caught in the dull monotony of sameness. It's like being dead while one still lives. It is life without the singing of a bird, the sight of the sun, the moon, and the stars, without fresh air. In short, it's life without the beauties of life. So talk about how he reacted to jail in the moment. This is the first time he's ever been in jail overnight. Um, and just explain how his, the rest of his life is then impacted by this experience of jail. Yeah, so, so the first night he's with a group of the male students, the Morehouse students, and he's in a cell with... Uh, the leader, uh, who is named Lonnie King, who, like Harris, helped us write this book uh, before his passing, um, the same year that Harris passed, uh, just a year before the book came out. Um, and when he was with them, jail was uh, bearable for him because it, Lonnie said it was like a nonviolence retreat. They were talking about movement strategy. They were, you know, they were telling jokes. They were, um, you know, King was was teaching them about. Um, you know, different philosophies and for politics and religion. And so he, he liked that company. But what's going to happen is all the students are going to, in a few days, they, they are released and King is held. And that's where it gets bad for King because, um, you know, as he goes through, he wrote more about experiences in jail um, later in the 60s in Albany, Georgia and Birmingham. And, and so, and that's, and the quote, that quote comes from, uh, later experiences, but but was the best encapsulation of how is, that jail was like. I mean, it was like dying for me. It was uh, uh, anxiety um, that was just really hard to bear. Um, you know, Coretta says, you know, I just don't think I don't. You know, I don't know if Martin can survive it, and um, that she just really worried about like Martin can't be alone, um, and and. Uh, and so, and, and of course we know that solitary confinement, uh, the, the effect it, it can have on people, um, as a kind of a form of torture. So, um, so that's what King kind of goes into in these nine days, uh, after the, the students are able to be released, but he is held. Um, and that was just a very difficult thing for him that I hope gives us all a greater, uh, admiration for King, what he endured, um, and, he didn't do these things because he liked to do them. He did them because he thought they were necessary to force us to confront these issues, to make people think about it, to shame our country and, and, and uh, make us not be able to turn away and avoid these issues, but make us say, huh, what's wrong? This minister is, uh, you know, in, in jail and forced to go through these things. It's wrong that the, the law is uh, not, does not seem on the moral side of this. And so, um, but, 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 you know, we wanted to kind of using the things he did, 
uh, leave behind some sermons he made at the time and um, uh, and, and, and some interviews, uh, be able to get across why that was, uh, you know, why it was so challenging and, um, and, and, and give you his Reedsville experience. Until this point, um, JFK is staying quiet. One of his aides, you quote, even is saying, if he would just lose his cool and show his passion, maybe he could call Coretta Scott King. Um, how does the decision get made to eventually call her? How does it go down? And it's this very interesting kind of scene where he's sitting in a hotel room and someone just says, why don't you call? And he goes, yeah, I'll pick up. Sure. What happens? <laughs> so Harris, um, the, the King friend and Kennedy advisor, um, the, he and, and his partner on the campaign, Louis Martin, uh, the black advisor, you know, they've been kind of stymied on trying to get public statements out about it. And they just go out for a beer and Harris kind of talking out loud. And he's, as you said, he's just, you know, what if, what, you know, what if it's just something more human? What if he just like calls or something more real who cares about press releases? And, um, and, and Louis jumps on that idea. And he said, that's just the thing that would really make a difference to people. And so the third member of the team, Sergeant Shriver, who's a, Kennedy brother-in-law um, and was in charge of constituency outreach for the campaign was back in Chicago and they get this idea to him the next morning and uh, Kennedy was getting ready to leave O'Hare uh, after campaigning in Illinois and, and Shriver gets to Kennedy's hotel room, makes sure the other advisors are out of the room who would, uh, you know, stop this risky idea um, and, and just poses it as, you know, the, this wife is really scared and it would be the right thing to do. And explain and, just and, real quick, explain why that would be a risky idea. Explain that. Yeah, because King, a young civil rights activist is controversial uh, to, to say the least, uh, you know, with uh, particularly Southern white voters. So if you are in a sense kind of allying yourself with him of, uh, you know, expressing sympathy, um, that's not how a lot of white voters thought of it. They thought, oh, he broke the law. He was arrested and, and good because he's, you know, a, making trouble and just going to cause nothing but problems and, or even worse, even, you know, more hostile, violent uh, feelings towards him. And so, um, so, you know, it might seem obvious today, but this was really, and they didn't expect one phone call to change uh, our politics. Uh, um, but they did think, um, it was the right thing to do. And by that time, because this unit had involved their campaign in it, Kennedy is already working back channels um, with the really unexpected people in terms of the racist uh, Democratic leadership, the Democratic leadership of the state. Uh, he's already actually working some back channels to get King out. And, and we tell that whole story. But and he, um, he called Governor Vandiver, didn't he? Exactly. Yeah, and that, yeah. you know that I'm I'm sorry to keep sending you in different directions here, but yeah, yeah. The, the the phone call is so fascinating to read yeah. because I've listened to many tapes of JFK phone calls, and it's always <laughs> him dominating, and it's always him hanging <laughs> up at the end, and he just yells and yells until he goes, "Okay, goodbye." It doesn't even say goodbye; it just says, "Okay." Um, and that call with Governor Vandiver, he's basically like, "Could you throw me a bone here?" And he's like, "Whoa, I don't know if I have any bones to throw on this one." Yeah, I mean that would be political suicide if it's found out that uh the, you know this governor of georgia who his is a democrat he's a democrat and his campaign was based around starving off uh brown versus board of education keeping segregated schools in georgia he is you know th th these you know southern governors are are like 
position themselves as the bulwark against integration. And Kennedy is like, you need to do this for, for our party here. You know, get this guy out. This is ridiculous. Um, and so Vandiver starts to work back channels uh, that, that go ultimately to this judge. Um, and, and so it's, it's you know, it, it is kind of like a thriller, kind of a bit of a, a spy kind of thing in, in those chapters of, of how that happens, but how it has to be, you know, silent, how there's different cover stories that happen. Um, but it, it's part of the real story that is larger than uh, what I think has, to the extent people know about this, they know Kennedy made a call and, and that was really important, but there's, there's just these other uh, parts that make it, I think are a really kind of exciting, rich uh, few days. But, um, but, but that call does end up being really important because it was human because, um, and you find out later in the book, maybe we'll, we'll get there how this team will, go rogue to let black voters know yes, about the call yes, without we're white voters. We're going to talk voters. about the blue we're box. Talk about that. Talk. But, 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 but it was, it worked, you know, electorally in politics, things of the heart and emotion, they matter. And, and that's uh, but so, call, so explain the call. So explain the call he has with Coretta Scott King. I, I sent you in a few directions. That's my yeah. fault as the host here. But, uh, but basically she pay, uh, they get her on the phone. He's sitting yeah. here on the phone. Please hold for Senator Kennedy. And Coretta Scott King picks up. What's the exchange? Well, you know, it's a very short exchange considering the impact it would have on voters as part of this realignment uh, and, uh, and giving us the world we have today of, you know, over 90% of black voters uh, vote Democrat. Um, it's, it's just a short, quick call of, you know, I understand, you know, that your husband's in prison and, and he knew that she was pregnant and, um, and he, you know, just expresses his sympathy and, and, and she thanks him for it. And it really was just a few, few seconds. And, um, and then he goes off, you know, and the campaign, that's what's amazing about a close election, an election that was as close as this one is a decision like that can have such an impact. And, you know, for all Kennedy knows, it could cost him the election. Uh, it ends up helping him win the election, but um, but it was just one little piece of his day of going, you know, to all these stops, meeting all these voters, doing all these things. Um, but it will be a very consequential moment in American politics for this linkage between Kennedy, between Democrats, and the black community of who can be trusted. Describe the reaction that Daddy King has because he 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 says something that is so. Um, uh, it's so consequential, and he um, basically, essentially, hears that JFK soothed the heart of his son's wife. Yeah, yeah, and and again, it, this call might seem obvious or mundane now, but as one person put it to me, I think Andrew Young said this to me, like. He had just never seen something like this in politics. You, know, you just have to understand where the, the situation of 1916, he'd just never seen a white politician express this kind of, uh, you know, sympathy, like put themselves out there um, for, uh, you know, a black person, a civil rights activist. And so for Daddy King, who had been really against Kennedy and really for Nixon, um, and, and Daddy King was less reserved than his son. He, he was like strong emotions. Um, he says, you know, well, you know, if, 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 if uh, he can, you know, wipe the tears, uh, you know, from, from my daughter, daughter-in-law's eyes, uh, you know, then he can have my vote. And, and he um, just immediately uh, flips uh, and, and then is going to give a sermon 
uh, after King is released uh, during a, a packed uh, church night uh, in Ebenezer where he just goes so strongly for King, uh, excuse me, for Kennedy, you know, knowing that Nixon did not speak up and that quote is going to be, you know, amplified in uh, black media uh, in part by um, Louis Martin on the campaign. But but for Daddy King, it just really, he was scared. He thought his beloved son was going to die. And I think if, if any of us are ever in a moment like that, the person who, um, you know, speaks out or is there for us, uh, gets, gets our loyalty. And that's really, you know, how Daddy King felt about the situation. He didn't see the politics in it. And he says, I'm going to dump all my votes in his lap. Yeah, which, which you know, he meant, you know, his flock, you know, his right, church, sure. the people yes. that follow him. But he said, yeah, you know, I got a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a bag of votes or something, or a suitcase of votes, and I'm going to dump them in his lap. And I'm going to dump them on his lap. And so he was saying, you know, I'm going to move Atlanta, black Atlanta voters, and it would end up being more than just Atlanta ones. Uh, for for Kennedy and um and, you know those were powerful quotes when again things were you know could have could have really gone either way we spend too much time in history and analyzing history and talking about JFK uh, what's the quote too much profile not enough courage um <laughs> let, let's let's uh, let's talk about the Nixon side here what is going on on the Nixon side uh, in the Nixon campaign as these moves are being made on the Kennedy side. The argument, and you just said it, the argument on the Nixon side could have been, hey, the Democrats are the one putting this guy in jail. Yeah. Um, yeah. Describe Jackie Robinson here and what he's trying to do. He is pleading with Nixon to take yeah. a stand. Yeah, so you kind of get to, to learn the story of uh, how uh, Jackie Robinson, the baseball legend, who really, he had a strong reaction against John Kennedy at the outset of the campaign, really thought Nixon was someone to be trusted and and he goes out you know campaigning all over the country for Nixon and, and really thinks Nixon is is key uh, for you know opportunity for black Americans and um, and then this guy e Frederick Morrow who was the first black White House aide in the Eisenhower White House and Morrow uh, you know really had a vision of uh, winning back black voters to the Republican Party of course black voters were initially Republicans, you know, because of uh, Lincoln, but then the New Deal and and the economic opportunity of Roosevelt, most go over to Democrats. And now it's like, and then, but then they were kind of winning them back during the Eisenhower years. And so, and now it's, you know, kind of, uh, like I said, kind of for, you know, they're looking for which way they're going to go. Um, it's just not settled. And so, so Morrow and Robinson are just kind of like chasing Nixon through Midwest hotels and, you know, train stops on the campaign, um, just trying to get in a room, get a message to Nixon. Uh, as you said, pleading with him to do it. They, it was so clear to them uh, that this was, well, obviously one, that's just the right thing to do, but they were totally clear on the politics. And so, so, Nixon had good advisors too. It's just the difference ends up being who listens to to others' perspectives. Um, as Kennedy ultimately will do that uh, in terms of the perspective of uh, you know that comes from Louis Martin and Harris Wofford. Um, but yeah, but they they wanted Nixon to really uh, seize this mantle that built on the work that he had done uh, because again, he had befriended King. They had exchanged these nice letters. They had met uh, in the years previous. It's like, why'd you do all this legwork? And, and here's this perfect opportunity to seize it. But Nixon 
uh, you know, we believe it was it was just really seduced by the possibility of of, of stealing that that democratic uh, South, and that meant a lot of white voters, and that meant you know that he did not want to upset the uh, the apple cart there. And um, and hey, you know, politicians all the time, you know, choose the cautious route. You know, they, they're making these judgment calls of you know what they can you know do or say and not lose votes. And um, but you know, ultimately. Kennedy will decide to be to be bolder than Nixon here and speaking up for what's right. So we've made uh, we've made we've discussed the call that was made mm-hmm. to Coretta Scott King. We've discussed the call to Governor Vandiver. Um, how does the um, Kennedy campaign? Um, I don't want to overrate their impact on this, but how does Martin Luther King eventually get out of jail? How is he eventually released? And was it Kennedy's influence, or was it that Georgia was just afraid of how this looked? Mm. So, um, yeah, so Kennedy, uh, excuse me, King is in Reedsville. Um, Kennedy is, because these aides have started this unsanctioned intervention, uh, Kennedy is inclined to, to finish it. And, and, and Bobby Kennedy is tasked with, with getting this done. And so he, he will make a call to the judge, um, and, and you learn about how this all happens because it's been told in history is this, he just got spontaneously mad about it and he did get mad about it, but, but this was, there was like a plan of, via these back channels for how this was all going to go down um, in a way that wouldn't in the political careers of the Georgians that they needed to release King. But, um, but they talked to the judge, the judge uh, ultimately kind of does the favor for the democratic party. Maybe they use hoping to get a favor later. Uh, and uh, you know, they, they want to get their party in there because they think that will starve off civil rights and, and but that won't be what ends up happening. Um, but they are able to get the judge to surprisingly to people reverse his decision. And, um, and, and King's lawyer, I want to also mention Donald Hollowell. Um, yeah, there's a really interesting cross-examination that goes on there with Hollowell, but yeah. go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Hollowell is just a, a real American hero and, and he, um, in the, the hearings, uh, which, are presented in the book as we found the transcript for the first time of King's court hearings. You know, he really tries to put segregation on trial and, um, and the judge doesn't want to hear it, but he, but he argued brilliantly. And, um, and then he also finds uh, or uh, with his team kind of a, a, a legal loophole that allows the judge to use that um, as uh, the uh, pretext for, going ahead and getting King home. So it's, it's it, you know, my favorite scene of the book is, you know, the, how when Hollowell gets to Reedsville, how they get King on a little plane and bring him back home to Atlanta and the students are waiting for him. I, I, I just love those pages. I think you just have, people have to read those. And, and, um, and so, so they, so they, they get him back. Um, and, um, but from there, uh, the, the Kennedy civil rights team, feels that maybe people haven't focused in enough in, in the black community on, on what Kennedy did. So um, let, let, let me get to that in one, let, yeah. let me get to that in one second. Yeah. But the question I want to ask first yeah. is yeah. King doesn't endorse, but when he's asked yeah. by reporters, he does thank JFK. And yeah. ultimately he believes this is a genuine move that went beyond mm-hmm. political expediency. Um, do you agree that JFK's team truly meant this? Um, 
I think they, they held two thoughts in their mind. I, I think it wasn't one or the other and the reader can make their own decisions, but I, but I, or their own interpretation, but, but I think it was both. I mean, particularly for the, the, the civil rights team, um, they just, you know, first and foremost wanted to save King's life. And, you know, King was a, a cherished friend of Harris Wofford and, and Louis Martin, you know, revered King. And so they held that in their minds first, but they also, thought there was some really useful politics here to to win the black vote and and the way louis barton put it in kind of in his um unpublished uh uh recollections that i that i use for the book that he, he it was also about like he just thought his candidate had done a good thing and people should know about it you know like it, it, it genuinely moved him and he he thought you know that this this uh, deserves to be known and understood. And so um, for Kennedy, I mean, I do think he would have just as well not engaged on this at all, but they had gotten him involved. And the Kennedys, um, you know, I think they, they they didn't like just gestures. They didn't like just virtuous gestures. Like they were inclined at that point. All right, let, let's get the guy home. Let's solve this. Um, you know, it is the right thing to do. What, what, you know, it's, it's BS what, you know, over a traffic charge, they're putting a minister in jail for four months. So, so, you know, I think that they, they, because King essentially says, you know, that they didn't know how the politics of this would go. So this was just this, they he did feel that, that, uh, and this is what he says when he comes out of the jail, that, it was, you know, Kennedy's humanitarian um, sense that that made him do it. And so King heading into this um, election and, and then and then even after this, you know, he's very he does not want to be co-opted by either political party. He knows, you know, there would be a benefit to either of these campaigns, um, you know, in, in having his association. And he wants to have a moral stature that goes beyond partisan politics. So he's not, so he ends up deciding not to endorse, but what he's already said is good enough. It, it is all that the Kennedy campaign civil rights team needs uh, to really drive home the association that, that, that they had, uh, that they had wanted to create between this, you know, rising civil rights leader and their candidate. I hope I'm not messing up the term here, but there's a wonderful term in the book called blue bombs. Yes. Um, how does JFK and the JFK campaign try to amplify what was done to get Martin Luther King out of jail? Yeah. So it, it's just one of the great schemes, I think, in American political history. And and uh, and for you as a journalist to, I think, appreciate Louis Martin, who was a journalist, who was an editor, his understanding of how to tell a story. And so Louis, a few days after all this, is just thinking, you know, I don't know if people have really focused in on this. And um, let's be clear, this is only a few days before. The, I mean, this is only a week before yeah, the election or so. This is not right. a month. This is a week before. Exactly, exactly. So, so time is precious. You only have a couple of decisions left. But you know, even though Bobby had helped get King home, he was so mad that this team had gotten them involved in a explosive situation that he tells them, tells them you're to do nothing further on the campaign. You're done. And then they decide, you know what? <laughs> We're going to print millions of pamphlets and distribute it through black communities of exactly what happened. And, um, and so, because Louis has this idea um, and Har that Harris encourages, they call up Shriver and he's like, yeah, you know, we're not going to tell my brothers-in-law about it. Let's just do it. If, if it helps win the election, they'll be happy we did it. And uh, I'll get you the money for it. And so they, you know, again, because Louis has this background as a journalist, he's able to, to, 
to lay it out, tell the story in a, a, a quick pamphlet. It was uh, on blue paper, so that's why it was called the Blue Bomb. And then using his networks in uh, every large black community or, or black community of a lot of different sizes in the country, they get it distributed. So it's it's distributed in church when people are coming out of church in Chicago in you know, New York, it, it's, they're, they're handing it out through communities um, because the genius of it um, was Louis' understanding that white media was just different and then black media, they weren't focused in on things happening in the black community. And so this could be kind of under the nose of white voters, not to mention their own campaign. Yeah, it's not like today. He wanted to get. Yeah, it's yeah, not today like today where like, like a tweet would go out and everybody yeah. in America would see it within five it minutes. There were two totally yeah. different media ecosystems. So true. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and he's both talking to editors of black papers in different cities and, and pushing the story that way. Um, and then also just the good old fashioned organizing of, you know, people that are the precinct leader, the black, you know, get, get this thing out. This is the dynamic piece of kind of lit that we want, that we want distributed. Um, and um, yeah. And so for a lot of black voters who were, you know, struggling to kind of differentiate these two candidates who had not, prioritized um, some issues that were important to them. Um, They're both just kind of these, you know, young candidates that, um, yeah, just that this was uh, able to be a critical thing. And, and, and again, the, the Kennedy civil rights team had been doing some really substantive civil rights outreach. And so this was able to be a nice, uh, you know, a cherry on the cake, but it was, it was credible in the sense that they had, built different, they had done different things um, along the way that really showed their interest in, in, in civil rights. And then this was the, a very human, uh, understandable um, It was tangible. To, yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. And so, uh, and, you know, and, and then, and in the pamphlet, it, it contrasts with Nixon staying silent. So they were really trying to kind of drive the knife in there of uh, that, you know, painting him as uh, rightfully kind of as, as cowardly. So, so they, they figure out this distribution uh, in a few days and in, in the precious time they have left in the campaign. Um, and uh, so, and, and that is a, a story that I think it's also about the friendship of these three advisors. And I think it's a, it's an exhilarating thing, you know, when you, when you have an, a good idea, an important idea and, 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 and when you make it happen and, and, and how they did that, and the role that plays in, in changing our country's history and our politics, I think is amazing. What happens on election day? Um, a, did black votes make a difference? And B, did the release of Martin Luther King make a difference in who they vote for? Yeah, well, the thing about a, a razor close election across a lot of states is everything makes a difference. And, and this certainly did. And, and black voters, uh, account for the the difference in at least nine states um, in the way that they moved from the previous election to the Democratic Party. The, the Republicans have been gaining, 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 um, and then in this election, Democrats reverse it. When about sixty six percent Republicans would never do even close to that well again. But, you know, four years later, as you know, once Kennedy pr pursues civil rights, and then Johnson really does. Uh, you know, then it looks like it does today with you know ninety five percent, ninety four percent, ninety percent. You know, going uh, Democrat. So, um, but but the thing is, uh, again, with these states, so a few thousand 
black voters moving ends up being really consequential uh, in these very close states in places, you know, like Illinois and uh, um, North Carolina and Delaware and, um, and New York and, and, and these states where, um, yeah, if you can move some voters, uh, then then that's going to be then that's going to be the difference. So, um, you know, and again, it, it, that there's a lot of um, kind of testimony from the time of of how it impressed people when they learned about what Kennedy did, and so that there was a real kind of electricity to the story in the black community, um, and. Uh, and yeah, and, and and so there you have them choosing the president that they want uh, and that they're going to hold to account to now advance civil rights, which was, ends up being a whole a whole another struggle and challenge. But um, and, and, and one that is not unlike, you know, the situation we have today in a new president. Um, but but the nation will soon wake up to the power that black voters have that had not been focused on before, but they made their voice heard. There's one argument in the book that I think is worth asking about. Um, it's a quote from somebody who's basically asking, is it patronizing to suggest that one phone call can make a difference? Is that belittling the judgment that voters have? What do you think about that? Yeah, and that's why I think that we really took kind of great pains to show um, how it was part of this larger substantive outreach uh, that Louis Martin and Harris Wofford had kind of created with, with Sergeant Shriver, um, that it wasn't just this thing. Um, but we do think that, or Louis did think it really helped as a clincher uh, for it and, and really, you know, for voters who were, you know, that, that became maybe more open to Kennedy than they thought they were going to be, um, then this kind of solidified. And, and I think, um, so one, so we included that quote because we wanted to to allow that perspective of okay, you know, is, is that veteran? Um, and so I think that's a reasonable thing to to think about. Um, but I also would say that politics is like this sometimes. <laughs> Elections are uh, can be, or and our perception of politicians can be determined by really little things. And I think that's just true of voters in general, just how our minds work. Of you know what's revealed about someone, what what is shown in their character. Um, and I think, you know, there's just, there's a lot of examples of that. And, and the improv, the, the improvisation nature of the way this election ended um, in that, you know, none of this was ordained, that, that people made fast choices and, um, and that changes history. But, you know, that's an exciting thing um, because, uh, you know, it was a test of people and, and they did, uh, you know, make certain determinations that would end up, you know, shaping their legacy. And, and we think it's really important for, again, understanding, you know, our politics today to understand kind of this to this moment um, and the way activists shaped it and forcing the issue, uh, forcing in a sense a test of these candidates. Um, you know, I just think the uh, emotion and, and human um, senses of, of, of the decency um, remains a big part of politics. As you said earlier, this is the last election fought in every region of the country. One of the things that sticks out to me is the way our politics looks right now, where um, the uh, Deep South um, and the Upper South vote generally in um, one way, at least in presidential elections. Um, we all know the quotes that Richard Nixon and his team said during the 1968 election 
does this moment start the slide to the Southern strategy that becomes a touchstone of American politics for the next two, maybe even three generations? And why did Nixon go from being maybe sensible is the word? Why did he go from being so sensible to being so harsh on race? Yeah, it, it is ultimately unknowable. Um, but, uh, in that on you know recorded tapes in the white house you know he said you know just terribly racist stuff and and you know it raised the question was okay was that always him and he was like putting on this good front earlier or did he kind of like harden in a certain bitterness um and it's probably some of both because um one insight into his emotions after the election is uh that 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 were in his files in the Nixon library is someone sent him a note of, yay, do you think it might be good politics to send a note back to all these people that telegrammed you asking do you speak up to you know for King? And uh, and he just scrolled on this no. And I think he was really hurt by uh, black voters, in my view, justifiably uh, evading him. But I but I think this was a painful thing. He did an uh, an, uh, an interview um, with Jet, uh, was it Ebony, um, a, a few years on, where he's just rehashing this from different angles and just saying, you know, it's just not fair. You know, you're not supposed to call a judge. That was grandstand. I was, you know, trying to do things behind the scenes. He just created all these justifications. I didn't know one phone call could, you know, ch- change all these things. He felt and, slighted. Um, yeah, 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 exactly. And it's a, <laughs> I can't imagine running for president. I mean, is it, you take everything personally, I'm sure. Right. Um, and, but, but, you know, he wasn't seeing that he, you know, could have, done a braver thing and so but i but i do think ultimately nixon wanted you know power and he uh you know wanted to be the one shaping the world and he did see an opportunity with southern voters and that the southern strategy was not it it was just kind of like just getting to team a little in his brain i think in this election when he saw he went down to georgia in august and saw a big rally and i i wonder if that was kind of uh, part of the beginning of it but he will really develop a language over uh you know ultimately for 68 and 72 um you know that 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 really activated certain resentments um against the progress of the civil rights movement and you know and so he's gonna you know talk about um, things like you know busting and, and, and crime and welfare and um uh and 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 different things that uh you know will have a lot of white voters going for him um and uh and then on the other side when when uh, you know lbj is signing civil rights legislation and king is beside him he says well we've lost to the south for a generation and so um you know the, the democratic party was making you know a different set of decisions around um you know, leading on civil rights. Um, but, uh, and, you know, there's going to be a reaction against that. And, and Nixon was there to, to really capitalize that, but take it from um, the, the George Wallace explicit language and, and find a, a subtler language uh, to, for the reactions against it. Um, but what's fascinating is, you know, after we had finished this book, you know, Georgia um, and electing to the Senate, the minister of King's church, you know, after a lot of years of, of organizing, uh, you know, for change there. So, you know, none of these things are inevitable and, 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 
uh, you know, there, there is change in, in politics and our, our coalitions can change. Um, but it is uh, certainly amazing to look back at like what the world looked like in 1960 and, and, and how these states were and then, you know, and, and look at, you know, how it is, how it is today. The worst thing about being an author is that people then ask you to rewrite history and ask questions like, well, what if this had happened? So my question is to you is, what if it had been Nixon who had called Martin Luther King? I think he would have won the election. You know, again, that's totally unprovable. But I think if he, um, you know, if none of this had happened, you know, maybe he was going to win say 45% of the black vote, maybe between 40, 45, you know, I think if he gets over 50%, if he's able to, to shift enough through, you know, speaking out, then uh, I do think he wins the election. And we're in a very different world where, you know, maybe Republicans, yeah, are, uh, you know, seen by black voters as the the leaders on civil rights. Um, But that is unprovable. And, and, you know, maybe he then, loses white voters and doesn't win (laughs) Um, because Johnson was able to, I think, be helping Kennedy hold on to a place like Texas Um, and the subtleties to which their team did this, uh, you know, really, you know, I I just don't think they lost a lot of white votes over that. They were scared they were going to, there was, there was definitely a risk of it. There were a lot of white politicians that were furious about it in the South, Um, but they were able to kind of, you know, voters just didn't, kind of moved on, didn't pay too much attention. So, um, you know, I, I, so I think had Nixon done the politically courageous thing, I think it would have paid off politically, uh, but we'll never know. But that's what happened to Kennedy. Dare I ask, you've written about um, interracial collaboration. That's your focus between you and your father. And by the way, thanks to him for writing the book. We're sorry he can't be with, with us uh, here today, but you, I guess, handle the interviews, which is fine. Uh, dare I ask, what is going to be next for you if there is a next book? Is there is there sure. is there a collaboration yeah. you see going on today that you think needs a book? Hmm. Um, yeah, we're 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 not sure yet. But um, <laughs> one thing we would love to write about is uh, Lafayette Square and the clash that happened during this past campaign because we think that is was just an important inflection point in the campaign, but really in American life of the the two forces that that met there between. Um, you know, the interracial Black Lives Matter protests and, uh, and, and Trump's forces. And so um, that's something we'd love to write about. I'm not sure if, if you know, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll see. Um, but, uh, but as you said, this, this theme is very interesting to us. We want to find ex- examples in history uh, that, that we can draw on today and learn from uh, for uh, effective work across racial lines in America. And so writing about the previous one, Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln, and the one before that about a civil rights case in Boston before the Civil War for uh, equal desegregated schools um, with uh, two, a black lawyer and a white lawyer, uh, Charles Sumner and Robert Morris was that story. And so Harris and Louie uh, were kind of, are, you know, are a great um, team in this book uh, that I think that we can, uh, that we can learn from. And um, so, you know, it's, a, it's certainly a central question of American life that, that we want to keep uh, exploring and, and giving people perspectives that we can learn from history um, and that we can, you know, draw on in our own daily lives and the things that we might do uh, that might be uncomfortable, uh, that might in some ways feel real risky, but are, you know, but are right uh, for, you know, how we move past <laughs> inequalities to to really, you know, live up to the ideals that we have and what we want to see and be lived by everyone in America. Paul Kendrick, co-author of 
nine days, the race to save Martin Luther King Jr.'s life and win the 1960 election. Thanks so much for being here. Thank you. Certainly check out that book and also his website, paulkendrick.com. He's on Twitter at paulkendrick84. I want to invite listeners to our Patreon page to ask for your support in keeping the show going. Go to patreon.com slash axelbankhistory. We're going to donate part of your contributions to a charity for children's literacy. And thank you for listening to Axel Bank Reports, History, and Today, conversations with America's top nonfiction authors and why their books matter right now. Check us out on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Axelbank History. We update those with clips from the show, guest announcements, and book recommendations. We'll see you next time. Thanks.